1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10, the Apostle Paul is speaking. But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And the woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct all the churches. Was a man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Heavenly Father, thank you for redeeming all of us who were slaves of sin. Father, before you opened our eyes and turned our hearts, we were in bondage and had no hope. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the price for our sins. And I pray that if there's those who are in ears uh, in hearing of this, that you would turn their understanding to know that on their best day they're not good enough, that Christ had to come because he's more worthy than all of our sin, as we sang earlier. Thank you for freeing us. Thank you for these words. Write them on our hearts. As Tom speaks, we pray that you will guide him and that the Holy Spirit will speak in us and guide us. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. When I was uh, very young, I learned by watching my dear mother that Having a great work experience was a lot more about attitude than about the job itself. Uh, but it really, it really wasn't until I got saved at age 16 that I began to understand what was the engine that actually drove both my mom's incredible job performance and her enjoyment in her work. That engine was her relationship with God. And that's what this is, that's what this passage is about. It's about contentedness in Him alone. We're going to devote this morning and next Sunday morning, Lord willing, to considering the vitally important instruction that Paul sets before us in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 through 40. 
We'll do up to verse 24 today. It's a two-part message, but it has one unifying theme, and that's the theme. Don't change your station in life. Change what you do with it. Every Christian is commanded in this passage to choose rightly between two competing pursuits. The first is the pursuit of a better circumstance for you during the time that you have on this earth. The second is the pursuit of God's purposes in and through your present circumstance on earth. You cannot be focused on changing your present situation at the same time that you're focused on using your present situation to optimally serve God's agenda through you on earth. So Paul tells us, between those two competing priorities, choose the second. And that doesn't mean that your station in life will never change. It simply means that those changes are much more God's business than they are yours. God will faithfully lead if you follow. But for you to devote a lot of energy and effort and agony into improving your situation on earth is utterly pointless. In fact, it misses the point. Jeremiah 10 verse 23 says, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in a man who walks to direct his own steps. That's a great verse. That's a really important thing for us to know. We are not the ones who direct the course of our lives. We're not supposed to be. Paul's first exhortation in this passage is found in verses 10 through 16, and it is this. Christian, if you're married, stay married. In order to be God's presence in your marriage and in your household. He begins in the passage in verses 10 and 11 by saying to Christians who are already married, in effect, don't be the one who ends your marriage. Now Paul is quick to to point out that what he's saying here isn't new. (laughs) He says, but to the married, I give instruction, not I, but the Lord. Paul is simply echoing Jesus' own clear instruction that we find in the gospel accounts. What Jesus required of all married men and women, now Paul Paul applies directly to believers. A married Christian is not to take the initiative to end his or her marriage. And while Paul does not present any exception clause here, his reference to Christ's already established teaching on this point, and everything that Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 6 about immorality, sexual immorality, and in verse 7, I believe leads us to to understand that he was aware that Jesus allowed a married Christian whose spouse committed infidelity, sexual immorality, to depart from that marriage. In the Sermon on the Mount, specifically in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32, Jesus said to the multitude, It was said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
In Matthew 19, verses 8 and 9, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The word for immorality that Jesus uses, that the gospel writers use in both this passage, is the Greek word porneia. It's the same word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 6 when he said flee immorality, sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality is a sin against the body, the body which is the temple and dwelling place of God on earth. That word, porneia, refers to any any violation of God's design for sex. And we've been talking the last couple of weeks about God's design for sex. It's actually very specific, is it not? Sex requires marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. It doesn't matter how unpopular, in fact, it doesn't matter how repugnant that proposition becomes to this world. That is what God has clearly, emphatically, and repeatedly declared in His Word. And you and I need to have the courage to stand where God stands. Jesus allowed for divorce when one person in a marriage committed sexual immorality, but, but beloved, far too many Christians treat that exception clause as an escape clause. And the result is that even when the offending spouse has been confronted with his or her sexual sin and is repentant, the non-offending spouse says, well, I can never trust that person again. I refuse to put myself in a position to be betrayed again. And God says I get to leave, so I'm out of here. The problem, the very serious problem that I have with that approach is that it completely ignores what Jesus did for the non-offending spouse as well as for the offending spouse. We are all offenders before God. I don't think it's any coincidence that the first of those two passages from Matthew that I just read in which Jesus talks about divorce, the first of them is from the same chapter, Matthew 5, in which Jesus labels every single one of us as a murderer and an adulterer. And the second of those two passages... Matthew 19 comes immediately after the parable of the unforgiving steward. Go read it in Matthew 18. It's about God's requirement of forgiveness on our part because of what He has forgiven us. At the root of most divorces, not all, but at the root of most divorces is a grievous failure of humility before God. A misplaced conviction that one spouse is morally superior to the other. Whenever you or I are deciding on a course of action regarding a sin committed against us, our first thought and our last thought should be fixed on what God did about our sin against Him. That tells us what we need to know in dealing with others. Ephesians 4, 30, 32 says, Forgive as you have been forgiven by God in Christ. Putting verse 11 of this morning's passage together with our Lord's instruction in the Gospel accounts, 
If a Christian woman bails on her marriage for any reason other than sexual immorality on the part of her spouse, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. At the end of verse 11, Paul applies that same command to the Christian husband. Now, we're very quick to see such a constraint as a terrible, even impossible burden from God. As something to be dreaded because of its harsh impact on the well-being of the non-offending spouse in a lousy marriage. But beloved, everything that God requires of His children is gracious. It's blessed, not cursed, to order our lives according to God's revealed will. Always. Even when the cost, (laughs) from the world's perspective, is unacceptable or even downright crazy. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And that means that, that we believe God's word more than we believe our own senses. Were you called while married to an unbeliever? Paul asks in verse 12. Stay married. Paul turns his attention to believers who were married to unbelievers. First he addresses the husband with the unbelieving wife, and then he addresses the wife with an unbelieving husband. In both cases, in both cases, the unbelieving, if the unbelieving spouse consents to live with the believing spouse, the believing spouse is supposed to stay in the marriage. Coming to faith in Christ, And being a new creation in Christ doesn't mean that your marriage is dissolved in the eyes of God. Marriage is part of God's common grace to all mankind. It pictures the relationship between Christ and his church. That's what it's for. But it is given to all mankind. In verses 14 through 16, Paul spells out the why. Why should a believing spouse remain with an unbelieving spouse? He says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. And and by the way, I will add that if you are a believer and your unbelieving spouse leaves you, and God says that that you are not under bondage, if you look at the way he uses that word, not under bondage, I believe that means that you can remarry. Look at how he uses it in the rest of this chapter. But he's saying you shouldn't be the one that takes that initiative. Okay. And I know there are some who disagree with me. I'm just giving you my understanding of that. Now, he says... The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, Paul's not saying that we we cause the salvation of an unbelieving spouse. He's saying we are the instruments of God in his work of salvation. Uh, That's crystal clear. Go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 31 and 32. 30 and 31. For by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. God is the one who saves, not us. 
Paul's use of the word sanctified, clean, and holy in those verses differs from the meaning that he assigns to those words when he's talking about uh, the redeemed children of God. Paul is talking here about how God uses a believer in a household of unbelievers to be his presence in that household. His presence makes things holy. Remember when Moses is on the top of a desert, a desert mountain and he sees this bush that's on fire and is not consumed? What does God say to him? Take off the shoes from upon your feet for the place upon which you are standing is holy ground. What made it holy? The presence of God. That's what God is saying here through Paul. He is present. You are, he just said in chapter six, do you not know that, that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You are a walking, talking presence of God on earth. And if you're in a marriage and if you have children, and you're the only believer in your household, you are the presence of God in that marriage. God says, delight in that. Stay in it. This goes right back to that idea of the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that happens, by the way, if you are a believer in in a household of unbelievers, that's not an accident. That's very intentional on God's part, and that's critical to what Paul is saying. God puts you where He wants you. And so you're not, God doesn't intend for you to be, be agonizing over how to improve your situation. He intends for you to be prayerfully mindful of how you may be used by Him in your situation. Those are very different approaches, are they not? Very different. Now, the passage is not encouraging missionary marriages where a Christian marries a non-Christian in the hope of drawing the non-Christian to faith. Paul will make it very clear later in this chapter, verse 39, that believers are to marry in the Lord. But think about this for a minute, guys. When Paul wrote this letter, he was talking to the first generation of the church. And in that generation, nearly all Christians were married, at least for a time, to unbelievers, right? Somebody had to come to Christ first. There weren't any Christians around until that started happening. Now, there were times when whole households were saved in a single day, like in the case of the Philippian jailer and his family in Acts chapter 16, and that's really cool, but it doesn't happen a lot, right? If you and I are faithfully proclaiming the gospel today... There will still be many new believers who are married to unbelievers, at least for a time. And since, since we're all born in Adam rather than in Christ, every Christian parent who bears children will for, at least for a time, have unbelieving children. You can count on it. So Paul tells the believing spouse and parent to stay in the marriage as the presence of God in that household. See, you're, you and I are to think of our households as a mission field if, if there are any unbelievers in there. And instead, so many Christians think of their household as some place they, they just can't figure out how to live in. 
In 1 Peter 3, Peter likewise speaks to a believing woman who is married to a man that is, quote, disobedient to the word. And if you look at how Paul uses that, uh, how Peter uses that exact same phrase one chapter earlier in 1 Peter 2, where he's talking about the Pharisees, he's talking about the Jews who rejected Christ. I take it to mean in chapter 3, disobedient to the word means a husband who isn't a believer and lives in opposition to God's will and God's ways. What is Peter's instruction to that wife? Same as Paul's. Stay in the marriage and be used by God. Peter says to women in that situation in the same way, and he's pointing back to the suffering of Christ, in the same way you wives... Be submissive to your own husbands so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Jesus submitted himself to his father and suffered for it. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. While being reviled, he did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that's what God says that wife is supposed to do. Your husband will not be one, if you're the wife in that situation, your husband will not be one through your sanctified nagging. If he is one to the Lord through you, he will be one by your humble, respectful submission to his authority in the household as unto God. And that submission comes out of a fearless trust in God's provision for you. God has you covered. That's the, that's the beauty of the Christian life, guys, is that God requires you to be his instrument as he blesses others. And what he says to you about your blessing is leave it to him. He has you covered. He might use other people to, to bless you, but that's his problem, not yours. You are not to look to other people, including a spouse, including children, to be the source of blessing in your life. That's the wrong assignment for them. And it's the wrong pursuit for you. And this passage, by the way, in 1 Peter, is not, a, and here in, in 1 Corinthians 7, is not about the wife getting her husband to treat her well, or vice versa. There's no guarantee that your spouse will ever treat you well. The passage is about that wife's laser-like focus on honoring Christ in her marriage, on being a vessel Humbly given over to God for God's use on God's terms, not on hers. And that's what Paul is saying to every Christian who's married to an unbeliever or to every Christian in every, in every other relationship. Be a vessel humbly given over to God for God's use on God's terms, not on yours. Trust God with your situation. Don't trust you. In verses 17 to 24, Paul moves from the realm of marriage to address a couple of other circumstances that applied to his readers, some of his readers when they came to faith in Christ. This is not an exhaustive list. Paul is providing examples in order to make a point, in order to drive home a principle. And his command here is exactly the same as to married saints. He says, Christians, remain in the calling in which you were called in order to use it for God's purposes. 
Now, I should point out that I do not believe this passage says that we shouldn't change jobs. But it most certainly points out that many Christians change jobs for the wrong reasons. Verses 17 and 24, if you've got your Bible, please look at it. Verses 17 and 24 are bookends to this part of the chapter. And just about dead center between them is verse 20. 17, 20, and 24. Listen as I read those three verses together. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner, let him walk. And so I direct in all the churches. Each man must remain in the condition in which he was called. And the word condition there is from the Greek word, the noun that means calling. Each man must remain in that calling in which he was called. And verse 24, brethren, each one is to remain with God in that in which he was called. You see a little repetition there? If repetition is theological glue, then the point that Paul is making should be cemented firmly in our minds and hearts. Christian, remain in the circumstance in which you were called. Why? So that you can focus your attention on using that circumstance instead of changing it. Those are very different approaches. Are they not? In verse 17, Paul makes a point to say, and thus I direct in all the churches. He does that a few times in First and Second Corinthians. To those who see his instructions here as applying in some very culture-bound, restricted context of something strange that was going on in the city of Corinth around 64, 65 A.D. that doesn't apply to you, you know what Paul says? He says, nope, I'm talking to you. All right, now let's take a look at the specific stations of life that Paul addresses in verses 17 to 24. And again, they're just examples. He says, was any man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He is not to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. I loved what my brother Derek said this morning about what grace does in us. It makes us love to do the things that delight God. It isn't physical circumcision. It isn't being a Jew or a non-Jew that makes a man or a woman love to do the things that please and honor God. It is that you are in Christ. It's grace. It's grace that makes us delight in doing the things that please God. It's a new heart. Were you called while a slave? (laughs) In verse 20, Paul restates the key command of the section. He says, each man must remain in that condition, that calling in which he was called. See, he says there are two callings. There is your present circumstance to which God called you, and there is your new identity as a Christian, as a child of God, to which God called you. They are both callings. We don't think of it that way very much. Each man must must remain in that calling in which he was called. 
And then he applies that command to one of the hardest circumstances or callings that anyone in his day had to deal with, and that is slavery. He says, were you called while a slave? Don't worry about it. Whoa. But if you are able to become free, rather do that. And let me, let me make sure that you hear this part. New American Standard translates it, rather do that. The word do is not the word do, it's the word use. It's the word use. If you're able to be free, rather use that. See, use whichever is true of you. That's what this is about. That's what this whole passage is about. Use whatever is true of you. If you can become free, that's great. There were, in, in an age when people were often bond servants paying off a family debt to some other more affluent family or institution, sometimes they were able to buy themselves, their family was able to buy them out of that bondage. That's what God did for you and me at the highest price ever paid in all of creation. He bought us out of bond slavery, out of slavery to sin. But that happens sometimes, and Paul's saying, it's okay if you do that. But if you do that, use it. When Paul says don't worry about it, he is not being cavalier about a grievous injustice. He's not saying God doesn't care about the injustice and inequity that produces slavery on earth. He's saying let your freedom be God's concern, not yours. Let God determine whether you may be released from slavery so you can focus on your assignment, which is being useful to God where you are. This is amazingly consistent in this passage, all of it. Paul is saying that agonizing over your station in life, even if that station is unjust and exceedingly difficult, is a waste of your effort and it is a denial of what God has actually made true of you even now. Your true well-being does not depend on whether you are a slave or a free man. Because your true well-being is found in being forever freed from slavery to sin and from the curse of sin and now being made a bond slave of Christ. The world longs for absolute freedom, doesn't it? Freedom from all limitations and outside outside constraints. But God's Word makes it clear from cover to cover that there is no such thing as absolute freedom. It doesn't exist. Whatever choice God allows to you and me is a choice of masters. It's a choice of masters. We can serve that which destroys our souls or we can serve the lover of our souls. But serve, we will. At the end of 1 Peter 2, Peter says this to slaves. This is, by the way, in that same passage where he was talking to wives. He says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And the word's a little more strong than that. It's the word crooked. Also to those who are crooked. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And then, get this, and then he says, for you have been called for this very purpose. What very purpose? Guys, to suffer unjustly for doing what is right. And then he gives us the template. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. An example of what? Of suffering unjustly. Christ, who committed no sin, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And by the way, what happened to Jesus because he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously? Well, the next verses tell us. He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus suffered righteously for our sakes in obedience to his Father. And what did he get for it? He got to pay the debt that we owed to God. So if the slave, if the servant's not greater than the master, what does that tell you about what might be the outcome of your obedience to God? Will it guarantee you a good and comfortable life? No. We gotta get rid of that kind of thinking, guys. What it will guarantee you is your participation in the suffering of Christ in order that you may participate in His glory. The first has to come before the second, and it will, because that's the way God does things. All right. God's command to all of His children who live under unjust oppression is be like Jesus, who left the justice that was due to Him entirely in the hands of His Father, who always judges justly. The only justice that's due to you and me is eternal condemnation by the hand of our perfectly just, perfectly righteous God, whose character we have violated at every turn. But Jesus deserved just treatment by men, and instead He received unjust treatment. If He did not take it upon Himself to end that injustice before it was God's timing, who are you and I to demand Justice for the wrongs done against us. God wants you and me to know that the injustices of other human beings against us are not our concern. They are His concern. And He wants us to know that when it comes to true well-being, those, those injustices done against us are absolutely no threat to our well-being at all. None at all. Now that absolutely doesn't mean that we're not supposed to care about injustices perpetrated against us. It simply means that God hasn't appointed us to address those injustices. We leave that to Him. He has appointed us to point people to the One who will fix all injustice on earth and the injustices in the demonic realm as well in Christ alone. 
One of the most powerful ways that you and I do that is by humbly giving our own well-being over to God. The usefulness, the usefulness to God of that kind of simple trust in Him on the part of His children when we are oppressed is off the charts. The power of that in the hands of God is off the charts. Where, where we mess up our usefulness is when we become our own advocates. One of the favorite accusations that is continually raised against biblical Christianity is that the God of the Bible endorses slavery. Or at the very least, that he turns a blind eye toward injustices like slavery, and he does nothing about them in the here and now. But those accusations are false witness against God because they deny what God has very clearly said in his word about his unbreakable plan to forever end all injustice, all prejudice, all racial hatred, all inequity, every other kind of division or harm that exists between human beings. God has told us how and when He will completely put an end to all such violations of His character. He has told us that His Messiah... Jesus, the long-promised King of Kings, will establish perfect justice and righteousness to the ends of the earth. When? (laughs) When the only people who remain on a redeemed earth are redeemed people. Until then, the world will remain a terribly unjust place. See, the problem... Beloved, it's not that God has been silent about injustice. The problem is that the world doesn't like His answer. The world demands that the how and when be on man's terms and not on God's terms. And that's not going to happen. You know why? Because men are unjust. People are sinners. They're not going to do just things. God's not going to hand that over to us. When an unbeliever says to you, well, I could never worship a God who would put off dealing with the injustices that are around us right now, you and I get the marvelous privilege of telling them what God is doing right now about injustice on earth. This room is an example of what God is doing about injustice on earth. God is miraculously changing the hearts of men and women Right now, one heart at a time, so that those whom He redeems love His perfect justness and righteousness. God is adding daily to His spiritual household made up of people from every tribe and language and nation who are all children of God. A household in which there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free man, male nor female, for we are all Sons of God. Firstborn sons with the full rights of inheritance that belongs to the one firstborn Son of God, Jesus, because we are in Jesus. And so Paul says in Romans 8, 17 and 18, says that we are, that if we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, we inherit God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Fellow heirs with Christ. We, what belongs to Christ, guys, belongs to us. All of us, together. God does not minimize the injustice of slavery in any way, but make no mistake, and this is very important, He never makes it the church's assignment to end slavery. 
or any other injustice that proceeds from the hearts of sinful men and women. Because in order to do that, guys, we have to end sin. And the only one who can and will do that is God. And He's already done everything that's necessary at the cross of Jesus Christ. We're just watching it play out. Is it wrong for a Christian to work zealously to put an end to an unjust practice on earth the way William Wilberforce worked tirelessly in England to bring about the end of the slave trade at the beginning of the 19th century? It's not wrong at all. It's good and commendable for those who love the justness of God to stand against injustices on earth. But every believer's God-given assignment always always goes beyond addressing temporary earthly suffering. And if we forget that, we miss our mission. God has not left us here to make people's lives less painful between now and the time they go to hell. It is not the mission of the church to get unsaved people to behave better. The mission of the church is to seek and save the lost as witnesses and ambassadors of Jesus Christ, and then to make disciples of the saved. Disciples who deny themselves and take up their crosses daily and follow Christ. Almost done. Verse 24 restates the same central command that Paul has camped out on since verse 17. He says again, Brethren, each one is to remain with God in that in which he was called. I said right at the beginning of this message that the Christian is commanded through Paul to choose rightly between two competing pursuits. The pursuit of a better circumstance for you on earth or the pursuit of God's purposes in and through your circumstance on earth. What is God's plan for you and me? What is He using our circumstance to accomplish? Why did He leave us here after saving us? We are not here to find well-being in worldly comforts and protections. We are here to be useful to God. We are here to serve His eternal agenda, not our temporary one. We are here to advance His kingdom and His righteousness. We are here to be His witnesses. We are here to continue the work of Jesus Christ to seek and save the lost. Because we, guys, we, the church of Christ, are the continuing incarnation of Christ on earth. And he's still seeking and saving the lost through us. I don't want to give him a big head, but my beloved brother Ken Hillard, I've thought of him so many times this week as I've been in this passage. There's a guy who cares nothing about the ambitions that drive so many people. But he cares so very much about the souls of the lost. He cares far less about his reputation in the eyes of people than about Christ's reputation in the eyes of people. When I grow up, I want to be like him. We have, by the amazing grace of God, been made a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession for a purpose. And that purpose is that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that other people can join us in that marvelous light. You have great freedom in the Lord to go wherever you believe God would have you go, 
to serve him in whatever capacity you believe he would have you serve. But be sure that the changes that you seek in your life serve that purpose, to advance his kingdom through you. Not to make your life more comfortable, not to make your life safe and prosperous as the world measures such such things. God has no intention of letting his children find well-being in anything but himself. So don't change your jobs to cure your discontentedness. That won't fix your problem. If you aren't doing your present job with your whole heart as unto the Lord and not as unto men, if you aren't treating your work relationships as opportunities to show the love of God and declare the goodness of God to others, changing jobs isn't going to fix your problem. And it's not going to make you more useful to God. Don't get married to fill an emptiness in you. That is the worst reason imaginable to marry someone. Marriage is for giving yourself up to another person as Christ gave Himself up for you. You can't give out of emptiness and need. First, be filled and contented with the lavish grace of God and Jesus Christ. And when you are convinced that the unfathomable riches of Christ are yours to overflowing, then maybe you're ready to get married. If you approach marriage that way, you'll never put your spouse in God's seat. You'll never expect your spouse to be the source of your well-being. And that will be infinitely better for your spouse and for your marriage. Don't have kids to fill an emptiness in you or to fix a problem with your marriage. Kids are bundles of unlimited need and unquenchable want. Until and unless God wins their hearts. If you make your children the source of your well-being, you will drive them and yourself to despair. If, on the other hand, you and your spouse bear one or more children in order to share the overflowing goodness of God with another human being as an instrument of God's blessing in their lives, both they and you will be blessed. You and I have been left here by God as ambassadors of Christ to populate his eternal kingdom with the souls of men, women, and children. Can you do that assignment if you're single? Yes. Can you do that assignment if you're married to an unbeliever? Yes. Can you do that assignment if you're in a thankless job? Yes. Could you do that assignment even if you were a slave or a prisoner? Paul did. Since those things are true, Paul says, stop ordering your life around changing your situation. Instead, beloved, use your situation to do what God has left you on earth to do. And rejoice right where you are. Here's the last thing I'll say. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Short passage. Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and of going hungry, both of having abundance and of suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you and I would apply the same level of focus and devotion and creativity to using our present situation in life to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ instead of 
using all that energy and effort and creativity to change that station in life, imagine how useful we would be to God right where we stand. Dear Father, we hear you loudly and clearly that our calling, our well-being, and our usefulness is not found in changing our situation, our job, our family relationships, our friendships, but it is found in submitting all those circumstances to you so that you may do your eternally good work in and through us on this earth. Humble us to embrace and to do that assignment with great joy, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.